Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. There is no question that the need for mental health care is greater than the number of formally trained mental health professionals available to do the work. Questions then arise about when must there be a referral from a GP or a PCP, a primary care provider, to a mental health professional. Joining us today to explore this critical topic is David Liparese, a clinical professor of medicine at Nova Southeastern University School of Medicine here in Florida. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Roughly 30% of the general population have a mental health problem, and of those, only 70% get treatment, and most of them get it from their PCPs, their primary care providers. So the question is, if and when and how does a PCP, a general practitioner, take on the care of a mental health issue? Where would we start with that? It's an issue of completeness of care, really, in my mind. As a family practitioner, as an internist, as someone who is essentially providing primary care services to the patient, we have to look at that patient in in totality and evaluate them, whether it's their endocrinological system, their cardiovascular system, and their neuropsych system. Lots of what we do, like you said, is really driven by psychosocial illness, even in primary care. A lot of our data comes from a gentleman by the name of Hirschfeld, who has published in both JAMA and the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. And what he tells us is that a lot of what we do every day in primary care is psychiatrically based, probably 50 to 60% of what we do as either a primary diagnosis or as a consequence of their primary diagnosis. Patients come to us with what they do not understand themselves to be neuropsych symptoms. And it's our job as practitioners to sort that out and to help them figure out what is important and what needs to be treated. And the guys who are willing to do that in a way that is complete are the guys who take the most interest in their patients and do a good job. Unfortunately, that's not everyone. But that's sort of the task that we have at hand in primary care because we are generalists the brain as part of that general review. It seems to me that a primary care physician or a family practitioner is much more likely to know the entire family. That is not necessarily the case when someone comes to a mental health professional. The person will come by themselves. You might have the advantage of knowing the daughter, the husband, maybe you took care of the aunt and someone else. So you have a larger view of the family from the start. At least I guess that's what family practice is in part supposed to be. I see that as an advantage that you guys have. It's, a, it's absolutely a huge advantage. You know, we know that, for instance, that with lots of disease states, take bipolar disorder as maybe the best example. There is such a huge lineage within that disease. Family history becomes so important in that disease in terms of identifying the potential for the bipolar patient. ADHD is perhaps another as a behavioral disturbance to know when you're looking at a member of the family that there was a previous member of the family with a similar diagnosis is very, very helpful. Family history is crucial, and that's something that we do have an advantage of, no doubt about it. It's very critical, extremely critical when we do our evaluations to meet the other people in the family. I like to refer to it as meeting the other characters in the play so I understand what's going on and sometimes the history can change. We often don't get that. I'm repeating just what you said but that's, that is a very positive shift or leaning to you folks at least doing the initial initiation of mental health treatments. Absolutely. It even goes far beyond family history because it's a level of comfort that patients have with us that gives us an even larger advantage. It's their willingness to come in and undress themselves in front of us, not necessarily physically, but mentally, that they're able to allow us to get inside their head and will admit things to us that they might not necessarily admit to someone that they're less familiar with or less comfortable with. And I think more than anything else, that's our biggest advantage. One of the things when I was in training, and it still is a debate in my field, is should we or should we not touch our patients? 
And do we do a physical? Do we not do a physical? A lot of therapists actually will shake the hands of a patient, but they'll never do a physical. You get to see the person naked. I mean, it's a very different relationship. It's very different. And, and to be able to do that means that you have to be welcomed into that inner space of a patient that very often they're not always willing to give up. And listen, even in internal medicine, physical examination is not nearly as important as is history taking, where probably 90% of our diagnoses are made with history taking alone. But to have the opportunity to get that degree of closeness physically means that you can get that sort of closeness emotionally and, and psychiatrically as well. Okay, so the question comes up then, how well trained, and, and I know it varies, but how well trained is the average PCP in doing a psychiatric diagnosis? What tools do you folks have to make sure that you're on the right track toward the right diagnosis? Unfortunately, I think we're very poorly equipped and very poorly trained. Just like everyone else, we did four to six week rotation and third year of medical school, and then perhaps another month or two during residency program. And that's it. And beyond that, it's on-the-job training. Therein lies a very large problem, a very large gap. Because we are given the responsibility of really driving the engine of our patient's care from all levels, we have to have, in my mind, in order to completely take care of them, a willingness to do at least the uncovering of a psychological illness and then refer that patient if we don't feel comfortable doing it. What you often see in primary care, which is, is perhaps a pet peeve of mine, is that there are certain disease states that patients come to us with where they don't have the recognition of what they're dealing with. For instance, a patient who comes to you assuming that they're hypertensive, they come in saying, I can feel that my blood pressure's up, but yet what they're feeling is the anxiety that's driving their blood pressure up. And some physicians, primary care, cardiology, will simply treat that patient with a blood pressure medication. But a more thorough physician will help that patient understand that, that their blood pressure is up as a consequence of how they feel and not vice versa. It's not that they feel the way they feel because their blood pressure is up. And then that brings you down an avenue in which your conversation now centers around their stress, their stressors, the problems that are creating that anxiety or depression that's resulting in their hypertension. That's the distinction between a thorough, competent primary care physician and one who's really getting in and out of the door quickly. The same is true with insomnia. It takes 10 seconds to write an ambient prescription. It takes 10 minutes not to, or at least to write something else along with it, because how often is insomnia a primary diagnosis? Not often. Very rarely. And so again, there's the distinction between a thorough, competent physician and one who's less thorough and less competent. What about the use of pen and pencil screening tools? There's a variety of them that you give to the patient, there's 10 questions, 15 questions. Do you find those helpful? I find them helpful from the perspective that it helps the patient understand where they are. Perhaps 80% of the time when patients come to us with the physical manifestations of an anxiety disorder or a depressive disorder, they do not yet themselves recognize that their underlying diagnosis is going to be anxiety or it's going to be depression. My level of awareness of what that diagnosis is going to be comes to me much sooner than it comes to the patient. And so I will use a PHQ-9, a GAD-7, MDQ, screeners like that to help move the patient along in terms of their recognition of what the underlying problem is and where we need to go in terms of their treatment. So when they see the black and white answers that they've provided themselves and the score that those answers then add up to, I think it helps them understand the reason that they're not sleeping is not because they simply have insomnia or the reason that their blood pressure is high is not because they have hypertension but because they have another diagnosis that we need to address and now we need to treat. 
And when something comes up, for example, a marital problem, and they look at you and they say, you know, Doc, my marriage is really just not good. And okay, you've touched on something. I would really like to sit and talk to you about it. I'm somewhat embarrassed, ashamed that I have a psychiatric problem. How do you address that? That becomes problematic because obviously we don't have the time to be their therapist. That's where we have to be proactive about encouraging therapy, either by way of a psychiatrist or a psychotherapist. I saw that patient today, a man who I had not seen in two or three years, who came in, who is in the process of getting divorced. He's in the process of moving, getting a new job. He's not sleeping. He's feeling terrible. He has poor daytime energy. He has anhedonia. He's becoming reclusive. He doesn't want to socialize. And he's embarrassed. And he was completely embarrassed. He himself interpreted that as a character flaw, that there was something wrong with him. I think after spending a few minutes together, I was able to move him to a place where he felt more comfortable about what was going on with him and was willing to accept treatment at that point. But in terms of counseling, I don't have the opportunity to do counseling, and that's when I have to rely on other people. One of the concerns that psychiatrists have in watching non-psychiatrists treat conditions is that the practice, the experience of using different medications in different dosing forms and combining medications and so on, is somewhat of a specialized talent, and it comes from just raw experience over the years. I have been very impressed with some of my PCP friends and colleagues. They're, They're very good. They're very good, but they also work at it. They ask questions. They'll call me up and say, hey, what do you think of this and that? And I respect them for that very much. My worry is that as there is so much pressure for people to get mental health care, and they need it, and we don't have the mental health care providers to do it, enough of them to do it, are we going to start bumping up against a certain portion of, of doctors who are going to be treating beyond their skill level? That That's a fright. A lot of people are worried about that. I would like to believe that that's not the case. I'd like to believe that when it comes to any other subspecialty, whether it's endocrinology or cardiology, oncology, that physicians know where their limit is and when it's time to refer that diabetic to an endocrinologist or whatever else the condition might be. So I'd like to think that we all know where that line is, now move on and ask for help. With psychiatry, there is a little bit of a challenge because no one, in my experience, ever says no to seeing a cardiologist or to seeing an endocrinologist, but they very often say no to seeing a psychiatrist. Patients, as I said earlier, are very willing to open up to us because of the relationship that we've established with them over a period of often several years. But there is still the stigma of going to a psychiatrist or even to a therapist. And it's often very hard to get that patient to move on to see a psychiatrist. Again, they continue to take that part of their illness as a character flaw. They don't want to admit that perhaps they have a character flaw, even though clearly they're mistaken by staying that. Making a psychiatric referral is often difficult, and it's often made more difficult by the insurance companies. Patients have significantly limited benefits, so there are some challenges there in referral. I'd like to think that doctors are still meeting those challenges before they go on to make a bad choice with medication. I'm sure that that's not always the case. One of the things that was pointed out to me by someone who was seeing an internist and went to a psychiatrist for medication management, which was good in many ways, but the person came to me ultimately and said, you know, I went from my internist who spent five minutes with me to a psychiatrist who spent five minutes with me. He said, what for? I thought I was going to go to a psychiatrist and that meant I was going to have time to talk and look at some other issues and it clearly was not what happened. It goes on both sides of the fence here and sometimes in both our professions, we don't do the non-biological aspects of the treatment that are necessary. I would imagine that is particularly frustrating for a good PCP whose heart 
and intention is in that direction. You just don't have the time and you don't have the formal training in the more complex verbal psychotherapies. I would imagine it's frustrating. It does become frustrating and you'd like to be able to do it and the patients would like you to be able to do it for them. But we continue to become more and more overwhelmed in our practices and have less and less time, unfortunately. I myself have also been guilty of telling patients who have limited insurance benefits where they may only have 12 psychiatric visits a year and if they go to a psychiatrist who burns up a percentage of them and the psychiatrist then refers them to a therapist within their office who's going to burn up the other benefits that I will often say to patients, let me do your medical management. Use 12 of those visits for your psychotherapy. I'd like to think that that is helpful, but at the same time, it's restricting what we're able to do. Is there a trend in training medical students or in residencies that are more general family practice internship type of residencies towards spending more time on the psychiatric and the psychosocial components here? I think we're doing a little bit better job because what we're doing is we're taking the training to the community more, where there's less hospital-based training and there's more community, meaning in my office with preceptors, where students are getting more community-based training either in an office setting with a preceptor or in a clinic facility where they're seeing patients on a more day-to-day basis giving them the opportunity to practice more real-world medicine on all levels, including psychiatry, so that they can see these patients when they come in on day one and make the diagnosis and not necessarily see them in a psychiatric facility where you're seeing sicker individuals. Day-to-day primary care psychiatry is GAD. Depression. Depression. It's phobias. It's not schizophrenia in an inpatient world. It's not bipolar in an inpatient world. It's less valuable for us to get inpatient psychiatric training than it is for us to get community-based psychiatric training in a primary care office. As long as that preceptor has the ability to teach you along those lines, therein lies the gap. You have less quality control over what's going on in the community-based education system. It also intrigues me that when the students or, or the residents do preceptorships with psychiatrists, it's really hard to say, hello, Mrs. So-and-so, this is a medical student or is a resident. Can he sit in on our psychotherapy session today? Right. That's that's hard. That's uncomfortable. Yes. And so they miss a certain element of it that we really can't give. When I was in training, we never had, it was, maybe it was just my particular school, but we never had the teachers in the room with us, but they may be watching on television cameras and, and the patients knew it was being recorded. But after a while, the camera becomes an indifferent member of the, of the room. Again, as I said at the very beginning, there, there's a question in my mind about, I know aspects of psychiatry that I wouldn't expect you to know, but you know aspects of cardiac medicine that I will never know. And that's fine. As I was pulling this together, it became more and more evident to me that what we need to do, as simple and old-fashioned as it sounds, we need to have better connections. I need to work with you better, you need to work with me better, and know our levels. Absolutely. That is the best scenario. I think one of the things that has helped us a bit in primary care is that the primary care literature, the Annals of Internal Medicine, JAMA, New England Journal of Medicine, do relatively frequent psychiatric updates where they will review more recent psychiatric literature and put it together in some abstract formats where they can hit several topics and give us a bit of an update that I think is sometimes helpful for us. But again, we're really scratching the surface. As the foot soldiers of primary care, most primary care physicians, I think, would tell you that they're comfortable with an SSRI, they're probably comfortable with an SNRI, but they're not really comfortable with augmentation beyond that. And that's when they're going to make a move to refer patients. The good news is within those first couple steps, they can still reach out to 
perhaps 50 or 60 percent of the population that need to be treated. Not everybody needs an individual specialist. A lot of people do get better with an appropriate diagnosis of an anxiety disorder or a depression with appropriate use of medications. I mean, that we do know that, and the role of the primary care physician in this is, in, it's, um, what's the word, indispensable. It works. I believe that totally. One of the things that's also a very interesting difference is that you folks are much more inclined to do the medical evaluation. In any specialty, what happens after a while is that we begin not to know all the new lipid medications that you're using or the cardiac medications. It's hard to keep up with it. And some of them do have psychiatric side effects or mixtures, and they, they need to be considered. We are very comfortable if we get a referral from a PCP because that gives us the sense that all the medical issues have been at least looked at. That's very soothing. That's an invaluable partnership because you're absolutely right. I can't be expected to know all the nuances of a psychotropic medication, perhaps, and to expect you to know the nuances in terms of its metabolic complications with regards to lipids and diabetes and, and all of the such is difficult. And if we can partner together in that scenario, you know, as an example, I recently had an opportunity to sit down with four or five other psychiatrists, and we were simply talking about sexual dysfunction related to antidepressant therapy and what to do about that. And one of the psychiatrists there was a middle-aged female psychiatrist who said that a lot of her female patients talk about their sexual dysfunction. And in her experience, a lot of it really just has to do with dryness as an irritation problem. And she simply recommends that they all go on estrogen replacement therapy. The problem with that is there are lots of contraindications to estrogen replacement therapy that she was completely unaware of. And you wouldn't expect her to be aware of all of them because she's a psychiatrist. And there's a scenario where if she had said, okay, here's your issue. I think perhaps estrogen replacement might be a good idea, but let's get the opinion of your PCP or of your gynecologist before we move on to giving you estrogen replacement therapy. There's a partnership that is in the best interest of the patient because you wouldn't want to give that to a diabetic or a patient with coronary artery disease because that's going to complicate their lives. So we have to partner in areas like that where we can't be expected to have expertise in all fields. It's so simple in so many ways. It really is. It, it, it's, we have a lot of good tools out there, and we just have to combine our efforts to make sure that they're used in the appropriate manner. Do you think that there is a diminishing of the stigma as we get into younger and younger generations? I know my parents' age group had more of a stigma than I do, my group, and my kids have no stigma at all. They don't care. They talk about it. I went to my therapist today. They, they share that. Do you see that in your patient population? I do. I, I absolutely do. I, sometimes I'm a little concerned about it. How so? Uh, well, for instance, with the use of benzodiazepams, that patients have almost too much of a willingness to reach out for a Xanax or another benzo that may not be in their best interest. I see it in the ADHD population that patients who have shared their stimulants, have shared their Adderall, and now all of a sudden a 35-year-old housewife is a newly diagnosed ADHD patient. That concerns me a little bit that we're over-diagnosing and over-treating those particular patients because they're coming in asking for a medication and it's easier to give the medication that a patient is asking for than to have that back and forth about what you think might be in their best interest, which is different than what they think is in their best interest. So there are some advantages to it because you're right. I mean, the stigma of mental illness in terms of us not being able to reach out to patients and treat them has been very harmful over the years. But at the same time, if we get a little too comfortable in certain areas, I think that that's a challenge also. Fair point. Fair point. In your practice, do you treat kids, people under 18? I do. General internal medicine typically starts at age 15. I tend to start a little sooner. Uh, 10 to 12 is when I'm usually comfortable treating patients. And a lot of these children have mental problems, mental health problems as well. I would imagine the approach and the dealing with them is a bit more complicated because they're kids, they're developing. They have a lot of psychosocial issues as well. 
and the pressures on you may be, you know, do something my kids not paying attention in school, my kids irritable, my kids nasty, speaking back to me. How far does a general practitioner get involved with that sort of thing? Well, in that particular arena, I rely much more heavily on neuropsych testing and psychotherapy as really my go-to with these particular patients before I'm going to have a conversation about medication. I have a couple of referrals that I feel very comfortable with sending these people off for testing and sending them off for therapy and then bringing them back if they need me for medication management. I try not to ever start with medication management in that population. A good child psychiatrist would agree with you 100% on that. I've been told, and again, I don't have the statistic fresh, that the English use about 50% less psychostimulants than we do in the treatment of their ADHD population. I've actually seen that data recently as well, and you're absolutely right. Oh, good. It's substantially less. Good. For instance, the, the India population is 10 to 20%. Fascinating material. It's a very interesting world that you work in, and I appreciate your time here to discuss it. And the impact of this is incredible, and the need is incredible. It's estimated by the year 2020, depression and other mental health illnesses will rank as the second or third largest health burden in the world. So we need to work together, and I'm so glad that you were here, and I'm hoping that people who listen will be a little bit more comfortable in talking to their physicians about getting the help they need. Dr. David Lipperis is a professor of medicine at Nova Southeastern University. School of Medicine here in Florida. Sir, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me.